Thanks, Ruth. That's just that passage just gets me going every time. It's just what we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, I want to thank Kendra for doing and can it be? <laughs> that is um, singing that I could hear the tenor voice of my dad singing that hymn. And I hope you notice what the rich theology is in that hymn. I mean, it is really rich, just the, uh, the story that it tells. And um, in every Methodist hymnal, the front, there's, a, there's John Wesley's instructions on how to sing hymns. And um, one of the things he says in that list is sing every verse. <laughs> because every verse of these hymns tell these stories and they come to completion and one builds on the other. And the end can it be, which is a Charles Wesley hymn, uh, is a perfect example of that. It's just really a, my, my favorite. And uh, I get choked up singing it. We're going to pray this morning, and uh, if you're new to Shepherd of the Valley, we've, we've uh, done this in the past. We don't, haven't done it in quite a while, but um, we're going to do a, um, a Lexio Divina this morning, which is uh, kind of um, reading a passage that um, we'll re we just read it and kind of contemplate on it a little bit. And so we're going to be doing that this morning. And what I will do is I will just uh, read it several times and then just kind of give you some instructions. So just it's a time of quiet. And I know sometimes quiet is awkward when you're talking about a group. So um, I just want to warn you about that. Get over it. Um, <laughs> just it'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. So I'm going to read a passage out of um, Isaiah, another passage that from Isaiah that's similar to what we'll be looking at this morning. And I just want you to close your eyes for a minute, and um, I'm going to read it twice. And uh, see if you notice a word or a sentence or a phrase that is highlighted to you that kind of jumps out at you. Okay? I made myself available to those who did not ask for me. I appeared to those who did not look for me. I said, here I am. Here I am, says the Lord. I'll read it again. I made myself available to those who did not ask for me. I appeared to those who did not look for me, and I said, Here I am, here I am, says the Lord. This next step of Lexio Divina is a time for reflection. And I'll read it again. And uh, just reflect on what does the passage say to you today, where you are right now. I made myself available to you, those who did not ask for me. I appeared to those who did not look for me. And I said, here I am. Here I am, says the Lord.
next phase is the prayer section, the, how we respond to God. How is God calling you to respond? And then take a few seconds, a few minutes, to tell Jesus how you intend to respond. Could it be a praise? Could it be some action? Could it be something that you need to carry with you this week? So I'll read it one more time and just ask God how, you, how he wants you to respond to this. I made myself available to those who did not ask for me. I appeared to those who did not look for me. I said, here I am. Here I am, says the Lord. I'll read it one last time, but now, times, now it's time just to rest in it. No action is needed, just rest and listen. I've made myself available to those who did not ask for me. I appeared to those who did not look for me. I said, here I am, here I am, says the Lord. Father, how many times have we missed you because we weren't looking? Thank you for pursuing us with your mercy and grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are finishing, or not finishing, we're going on with, we just started actually, our, our uh, series on Mark which was two weeks ago. I really appreciate um, um, Lynn filling in and, and, and bringing to us. I always think it's important for us to hear another voice, and I think it's good to listen to another voice, and, and it um, gives me a break every now and then uh, to, um, to, to receive and read and receive and, uh, instead of being up here doing what I do. And so it's good to, to have him up here. And I brought some pictures this morning of what's going on in our front yard, uh, if I can turn this on, or, or in front of our house lately. 
Uh, we're, this, we're looking at, at the Mark fullness of time, Mark chap, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. This is what's going in front of our house uh, lately, and you probably already know this. It's, uh, what they're doing is uh, they're putting in a new sewer line under the Eugene Street and 10th Street, and they're going to redo the sidewalks and then redo the road, redo the street out there. And uh, so um, they had to do uh, something really weird to our house because our, our line just kind of went off to this diagonal kind of thing and went way too far, so they had to redo it. And one of the workers told Sue that uh, our house alone was costing the city $30,000. So those of you who pay your city taxes, thank you very much. We appreciate that. <laughs> We're so grateful to that. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, we all know that these road work causes a lot of disruptions. These things don't happen overnight. They, uh, but they're, they're trying to, they're kind of, when I saw that out there, they're kind of uh, doing what Isaiah said, uh, make the way ready and uh, make the road straight for the Lord. But I don't know if they're doing it for the Lord or not, but that's what it reminded me of, which is what John says in, uh, in Mark chapter one, or at least Mark tells us that John is, is saying, is that uh, make the road straight, make ready the path for the Lord, and um, this is all full of our, our expectations. And when, he, when, when John is saying this, when John is preaching this, he is to, he, everyone knows that we're talking about road work and kings. This has all come together. Uh, the, but, but Isaiah and John, uh, Isaiah's prophecy and John's repeating that prophecy, he is not talking about a king that they've, ever, that they've ever encountered before. This is a totally different kind of king. And uh, whenever a king is entering in, it calls for preparation that involves road work and uh, literal road work. That's why this, that's why this prophecy has such uh, impact for the original audience was they knew this was, was requiring road work because what happens is the king, whether it's Babylon or Syria and including Rome, when a king has, has conquered an area, they will make the way straight, they will prepare roads, they will erect triumphal arches, build bridges, uh, flatten mountains, fill valleys, so that the king can come in and everyone will recognize just how powerful he is and just how, how uh, wealthy he is. And it always involves the little, little road work. And this is risky business that, that uh, John is doing right now because he's talking about another king that's not Caesar. And we looked, looked two weeks ago, we talked about how Mark titles this book. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the gospel is the message, it's a, it's a Roman word that declares the entrance of a new king, a new Caesar. Things are happening. This is all going to be good because a new Caesar is in charge. And now John, and quoting Isaiah, is saying that this is going to happen. This new king is coming. But it's totally different. This isn't a king that's coming with some military genius. This isn't a king that's coming with, uh, to try to conquering armies. When you read on in Isaiah's prophecy, you realize that he's talking about somebody and talking about humanity that is very, very vulnerable and the need to completely depend on God. So when a king is marching into this road, when the king is coming into the town, he usually comes with this entourage, this, uh, this procession of the people he's, he's enslaved, of his captives, and some lions, a lot of times on leashes, all to say, look how powerful this is and look how wealthy I am. But this is not who Isaiah or Mark or John the Baptist had in mind. 
He is not talking about a military genius. He's not talking about some other form of theocracy that we see today in certain brands of Islam. He is talking about humanity, and he's talking about the dependence on God. And he's saying this is a new order. This is not coming out of the existing powers. This is something new. And it's a direct affront to Caesar. Caesar was called the divine man on the coins that have the, the current Caesars on there. They call him the son of God because the guy, the father before him who now died has now been deified. He is a God. And Mark is calling about somebody else. Mark is taking dead aim at Caesar and he's taking dead aim at the myths that surround Caesar. And this is a new thing that he's doing. And right after that introduction, with all the road work and stuff, we have Mark doing these three scenes that are really, really, really close together. And they, they're really rapid. Uh, three different places, and each, each description is just maybe two, maybe some one verse, one or two verses. And so verse 9 starts, we're just going to look at verses 9 through 11, 9 through 15, I'm sorry. Now in those days, <clears throat> Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he came up out of the water, the heavens ripped open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a, of a dove, and he heard the voice say, this is my son, this is my beloved son, and I'm so pleased with him. And then immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he stayed for 40 days while Satan tested him, and he lived with the wild beasts, and the angels attended him. And then after John was arrested, he went to Galilee to proclaim the good news of God. Proclaiming, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. The fullness of time is here. Believe the good news. So we have three scenes really quick, just one right after another. And, and when you think about it, this is the first time, you know, the, the title is that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then Mark starts talking about John. And so this introduction to the main character of the book is kind of underwhelming a bit because he then talks about John and John goes on to say, yeah, this is the, this man, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And so we're all waiting for this, this present, this, this, this person to be, be introduced to us. And he kind of comes out of this anonymous crowd to get baptized by John. And it's almost a, a contradiction. And Mark seems to be kind of obsessed with reminding us that Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee. And so when we introduce Jesus in Matthew and Luke, at least Matthew gives us this really good, solid genealogy, you know, that we know Jesus' roots and we know that, you know, he comes from good stock. And in Luke, Luke tells us about the angels and the shepherds and the prophecy of Simeon. But Mark just says, oh, this guy, he comes out of the crowd and says, and he's baptized by, by John. And that's it. And he tells us and he emphasizes this. Mark loves, you're going to find that Mark loves repetition. He's a good teacher. He likes repetition because that, that gets us in our head. He repeats over and over again that, he, that Jesus is from Nazareth and Galilee. He seems to want to emphasize that Jesus is not from the center of power. He's not from Rome. He's not from Jerusalem. He's on the margins. He comes from Nazareth. He's a villager. It'd be like if, you know, this new king just came from Condon or Durfer, Dufer or something, you know, or I was going to say, you know, uh, Bug, Tuttle, Bug Tussle in Texas, but there really is a town called Bug Tussle in Texas. 
And that would what be, that was what it would sound like. And, I, and furthermore, he mentions Galilee, which the Jews in Jerusalem were really suspicious of because Galilee was surrounded by Greek cities, all these Gentiles. I mean, they're, they, they're, the, the men married Gentile women, and we can't really trust the Gentiles. We can't really trust the Galileans. They're up here, and it's separated from Jerusalem by Samaria, so you have to go around Samaria, so you don't want to get contaminated, to get into Jerusalem. And so they're all really cautious about Galilee, and I think Mark is trying to emphasize that there's a distance between the center of power and where Jesus comes from, that this is something very, very different. And Mark says that he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we have to kind of understand the tone here. It's not that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's where it's important. Because every Jew, know, Jew, Jew knew that Jordan was more than just water. It was very symbolic. It carried a lot of meaning for Israel in this time because this is where they went through to enter the promised land. And it's very clear that John is doing this and Mark wants to make this very clear that this is the beginning of the new Exodus. The Exodus de defines Israel and now he is saying this deliverer, this man, this, the God is going to do what he has always promised to do and that is come to dwell with Israel, come to dwell with his people and he will take them through Jordan into the deliverance, into the promised land. The Jordan River is very, very important. There were plenty of other options for water around everywhere, but they picked the Jordan because it's important. It says deliverance. And so it says he's baptized, and he comes out of the water, and he says, really, the, literally, the heavens were ripped open. It's the same word we get our word schism from. There was a big schism in the heavens, and the dove came down, and the spirit came down in the form of a dove. And it's very important that we see this in, uh, in Isaiah. A, uh, it uh, is a direct fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 64. He says, if only you would tear apart the sky and come down. and the mountains would tremble before you. And so this is what Mark is getting at. This is what Isaiah was talking about. Mark will do this throughout his book. He'll be saying, this is that. That which you read about, it's happening right now. The sky ripped open and the spirit came down. And this just confirms what Mark claimed in verse one. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he hears this voice that this is my son who I love and I'm really pleased with him. This is an apocalyptic passage. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, we have ruined the word apocalyptic. Hollywood has ruined it <laughs> because we think of apocalypse and we think of the end of the world. We think it's these disaster movies. It's an apocalyptic movie about the, about the destruction of earth. That's not what the word means. The word simply means to reveal, to pull back the curtain, the curtain, to unveil something. And that's all that's happening here is God is pulling back the curtain and we're seeing the real announcement of this king, the arrival of the king that he, is the, he will be the last king 
that will ever matter. And God is pulling back the curtain and letting us see it. The last king that will ever matter. And this is how, John, this is how Mark introduces him to us. This last king that will ever matter for the rest of eternity. When we get to this passage, a lot of people want to say, well, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, it says in you know, the first section that the people came to repent and receive forgiveness of sins, and they were baptized by John. Why did Jesus have to do that? I thought, John, I thought Jesus was sinless. Why did, why did Jesus have to be baptized? I believe that this was a genuine baptism and this was a genuine repentance. But what did Jesus have to be repentant of? This is what I think, okay? <laughs> you, you can... You can interpret it somewhere else uh, the way, but this is what I think is happening. Jesus is the king, and Mark is presenting him as the king. And who is the king? He represents the people. And I think he is repenting. Mean, it doesn't mean I'm sorry. Repenting means changing course, changing direction. And as a representative of the, of the people, he is saying, he is saying, he is renouncing the old way. He is renouncing the old way of doing things. This is a new thing. This is a new creation. And so in order to inaugurate a new creation, you have to renounce the old one. You have to renounce what the way we did things before. And Jesus, as the representative of the people, is doing that. He is declaring that this is a new thing, and I'm renouncing what we did before because it doesn't work. It never worked. He is changing course. All those debts, all those violence, everything that was built up in the old system is now canceled. This is a new creation. He's renouncing the old way, and if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we will understand that, that this is something new. The old way is gone, but the old way will not go without a fight. And so immediately... Jesus is driven into the wilderness, which is another interesting word here. We kind of think that Jesus was sort of led into the wilderness, or maybe God spoke to him and he was kind of, you know, kind of moseyed into the wilderness. The word that Mark uses, it's driven. It's like he was dragged into the wilderness. And just like the Jordan doesn't mean just water, the wilderness is not just sand either. The wilderness is important also. Why? Because if he's reenacting the story of the Exodus, just as the nation Israel was tested in the wilderness, so the king is tested in the wilderness. And he is tested by Satan. And we see this as this carries it through the book, that from here on out, this is a combative story. This is a story of battles. And Mark is telling us that this is the king this is the Son of God who God is pleased in, and the battle starts now. And he spends 40 days being tested by Satan, and again, we see this through the book. He confronts demons. He confronts uh, unclean spirits until finally this kind of entrance into this, he confronts what Jesus calls the strong man. And then we finally get to the, in, to the introduction to the cross. And this whole idea of this name, the Son of God, is such a key element of the book. And we have to understand this, 
that this is who Jesus is because the message, the question that goes through all the book is Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say I am? And Mark wants us to be very clear of who Jesus is. And just as his baptism introduced his, his ministry, the transfiguration where God repeats it again and says, this is my son who I'm, who I, whom I love, it sort of introduces, introduces the crucifixion. And Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds. Caiaphas, the high priest, responds in these words, but he, but he uses them as a joke. He changes the tone. And he's not done yet. Mark's not done yet. Even at the foot of the cross, there's a soldier there who looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. This is the point of Mark. This is the Son of God. And in the wilderness... He is tested just as the king of Israel. He was tested just like Israel in the wilderness. And each side has their soldiers. Mark tells us that Jesus was attended to by the angels. And he also mentions that they were with wild beasts. He was with wild beasts. And I take it that this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Mark also refers a lot to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gives us these big descriptions of all these animals. And who are these animals? It's kind of this collective of all these kings and rulers. And Daniel tells us that there is this power behind all these kings and rulers. And I think this testing here begins, the, begins this, this battle that will go through the rest of the book that Jesus is confronting the enemy here and it's not necessarily Herod, it's not necessarily Caiaphas, it's not necessarily Caesar, it's the power behind them. And Jesus is confronting the power that is behind these rulers, the rulers described in Daniel. And I think that's what's going on here. This is a combat, a story of combat and battles. That will, that will increase and will have this, this crescendo all the way through the book. And I think it's important that Mark mentions that it was after John was arrested because this is the battle. This is dangerous. And Jesus himself, we know, will then become a target himself. And they will arrest him. And they will crucify him. And this is how the battle is won. And then this last scene, he goes back to Galilee after John is arrested to sort of say, yeah, the, the prophetic mantle is now passed on to Jesus, and now Jesus is taking the message as the king. I, on a side note, I'm not so sure John captures everything. I think he's, he's loyal to the prophecies. He's loyal to the story, but I don't know if he captures it all because remember in jail, he sends people after him saying, hey, you know, are you, are you the one or do we look for somebody else? And Jesus responds, says, go back to John and tell him the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. These are all kingdom activities. And Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. It's here. The time is here. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This just reminds us of the danger that he's at. And I think Mark is trying to thread the needle here. That it would be very easy because most of the Jews and most of the leaders of the Jews kind of took all those prophecies and promises of God to, be in, to imply political 
military victory over the enemy. Israel had kind of carved itself out to exist in this, in this area in the Middle East, but it's always been, but most of its history, they've been either conquered, occupied, uh, exiled, and now they're here again, and I'm sure most of them are thinking, this is, military, this is military victory. And Mark, and I think Isaiah, and now Jesus is saying, but it's not going to be that way. It's a different way. We're going to do things in a different way. You've done this all along, and where have that got you? All failures. We're going to do it in a different way. And I think Mark is trying to thread the needle here to say this is the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it's not Jewish nationalism. This is the fulfillment of what God promised, that he will dwell with us, but it's not, it's not a holy war. It is a holy war in the sense that it's with the real enemy. And he's saying this is something different. This is the good news. And he's drawing some loyalties here. He's saying you've got to choose which side you're going to be on. You've got to repent. In other words, change direction. This is more than just saying, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. This is changing the direction of where we go and how we're living. And I think what he's saying is that, that Israel for so long has broken Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 is this long passage about warning them, do not go after false gods. Do not go after idols. Do not go after anywhere else. And then Daniel comes along and says, oh, but you did. You did do that. And these are the consequences. This is what happens. And now Jesus is saying, choose your loyalty. Choose your allegiance. This is not some cunning new plan of how to get you to heaven necessarily. This is not some new rules for humans to obey so that they learn to behave themselves. He is taking charge in a new way. God is coming to take charge in a new way. The kingdom is near. It is present in the person of the king. And this kingdom is set apart. It's distinct from the kingdoms of the world. There is this contrast of power here instead of, instead of top-down power. It is under power, under servant type of power. There's a contrast between the power of the sword and the Calvary type love of power. There's two ways of living here, two ways mind, to have mindsets, two two belief systems, two loyalties, two things to choose between the two. And I, I want to stress this, that, that Jesus is calling us to do this, this choice between these two loyalties, these kingdoms of the old way or the kingdoms of the new way. And I think this is really important as we enter another election season. <laughs> I dread this. <laughs> I dread it. But we have to choose. I'm not saying don't get involved. I'm certainly not saying don't vote. Of course I'm not. But I'm just saying be clear to where your loyalties lie. Amen. Where are your loyalties? And that's what Jesus is calling us to. The old way doesn't work. This is a new way of doing things. Sue and I were listening to a podcast yesterday, and this guy gave this great illustration. He said... He said that, that, that Christianity, the gospel, is kind of like the spaghetti sauce that your great-great-great-great-grandmother brought from Italy. 
And she had this wonderful spaghetti sauce that just was famous throughout the village and his family and stuff. And it got carried on and, and immigrants came to the United States or other places and it got carried on. And, and this family, this, this, this grandma, great, great grandma added this and this person added that and this person added that to where you come to the present and your spaghetti sauce from your great, great, great grandmother tastes more like, you know, SpaghettiOs. <laughs> And he says, that's what I feel like something has happened in every culture, not just ours, but in every culture. We keep adding these things to the gospel. We keep adding all these things to it until all we got is SpaghettiOs and we've lost the, the, the rich recipe that we started with. And Jesus is calling us back to that kingdom. Repent, turn around, change the other way, change your way of thinking. Choose your loyalty because the kingdom is here. As Dallas Willard describes it, it's around our ears. I just love that expression. Choose it. This is your loyalty. So John begins with the road work, preparing the way, preparing the way for the last king that will ever matter. And I forgot to go through PowerPoint slides. I got too excited. This is the arrival of the last king that will ever matter. I divided it into three sections, his inauguration, his adversary, his announcement. And now we've got to do the road work. We've got to do our own road work. Jesus speaks powerfully here that they were in the same position as their ancestors. Rome is the new boss, but in reality, reality it's still the same old boss they've had before. And uh, with these strategies didn't work. You tried different things. You tried beating them at their own game. You've even tried adopting some of their gods. You've tried beating, their beating your neighbors. You've tried to mirror uh, their tactics, their government, everything else. And Jesus is saying, it's time to turn it around. This is the last king that will ever matter. And we have our own road work to do. The heart of the road work is the act of repentance to change the direction. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. Uh, but it says, I'm tired of trying to save myself. I'm tired of trying to do things my own way. I'm tired of this self-loathing that I carry around with me. I'm tired of all that. I'm going to turn around and change another direction where it's freed. I am unburdened. I am healing. This is a one-of-a-kind king who does these things, who frees me, who unburdens me, who heals me. And we choose to change the other way. We join the king's entourage, but it's an entourage of freedom. We're not joining it. We're not joining it because we're enslaved. We join it because we turn around and embrace and, and receive the embrace of the king. And then we welcome others to also receive the embrace of the king. We join him because he's freed us, because he's healed us. We join his entourage, and we realize the road work that we're doing leads not to a place, but to a person. And we come to the person, and we join his procession, not because we are enslaved, not because we are defeated, but because we are freed and unburdened, because we have embraced, because we are blessed 
and because we have a new opportunity to live as God intended. And finally, this is a one-of-a-kind of allegiance to a one-of-a-kind king. The one-of-a-kind allegiance to a one-of-a-kind king. The king came to reclaim the creation. He has come to reclaim what he created, including his image bearers, maybe even especially his image bearers. He's came to reclaim us. He didn't come so that we, we, need, we didn't escape challenges and we don't escape heartaches. He didn't come so that we could triumph over our enemies. He didn't come just so that we could be raptured out of this place or, or ignore it and just kind of look for comfort and ignore everything that's going around us. The king came from someplace else. He didn't, his kingdom came, he came from heaven to us and entered our world with us, our world of joy and beauty, as well as tragedies and challenges. This is the only world we have. He entered into it. Why? So that we could enter into his life. Amen. That's it. We enter into his life because he entered into our world. We enter everything that he created. Now, later on in the book, there's a group of people who are marveled at what Jesus is doing. And you know what they say? They say, everything he does is good. And I got caught up on that little sentence. Everything he does is good. It's not like everything, boy, he did a really good job on that project, you know? Or say, boy, Sue, you did a really good job on that painting. No, this is good in the moral, ethical sense. Everything he does is good and is good for you and is good for me. He is a king worth following, a king to receive his embrace. He entered our world so that we can enter his life. And we declare our allegiance. Well, I've, I've read this before, but I think it is so, um, so beautiful. This is what the early Christians captured. They caught it. They caught the idea. This is the original spaghetti sauce. And uh, we have a letter written about 130 A.D., which is about 60 years probably after Mark wrote his gospel. And it's a letter to Diognetus, a man we don't know who it is. We don't know if Diognetus was a critic of Christianity or whether he was a follower of Christ or maybe a skeptic thinking about following Christ. But this letter tries to explain what Christians are. And he says... Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. Like others, they marry and have children, but they don't leave them exposed. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. 
They're obedient to the laws, but they live in a way that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They may be defamed, but they will be vindicated. They got it. This is what it looked like. This is what it looks to pledge your allegiance to the last king that will ever matter for eternity. Father, we thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you how clear it is and how succinct it is. Father, we this morning, we this morning want to consider what our life would be like if you were king of our life. That we pledge our allegiance to you in every area. Father, clear, show us what would change for the better because everything you do is good. In Jesus' name, amen.